This is PR in the 80s, a podcast where we interview former CRECOM students and public relations professionals who will share with us their learning and experience with public relations. Today we're interviewing June Kirby, who is a PR powerhouse and was the Vice President of Communications for the Toronto Air Show during the 1980s. To start, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit? Okay, my name is uh, June Kirby, and uh, I retired as the Vice President of Public Affairs at uh, Manitoba Telecom. I uh, started uh, to work in PR in the 1970s, and so I've seen incredible change. I'm not sure how you are going to be able to do the job in the future. Could you tell us a little bit about how you chose to go into PR? I sort of fell into it, which was typical. I have a degree in political science. was often combined with other jobs, and I was hired as the executive director of the um, air show at the Canadian National Exhibition, which in those days was the largest air show in North America. And they were a big deal because aviation was still of great fascination to most people. And as part of my job, I did uh, the PR as well as a number of other things. And a lot of the career people, that's how they got into PR. A lot of your reporters had degrees in political science, in, in English. And I'm not sure when the journalism school at Carleton, I believe in those days there was one in, at Carleton University and one in Western, but we weren't fortunate enough to have the kind of courses that you have today, like the one you're doing at Red River. When you started in PR, can you sort of describe what kind of things you were doing and like what the job was like? Well, we were doing a lot of the same, except we did it with totally different technology. You know, we were putting out press releases, very seldom a press release. Normally the way it was done, because there were no faxes, there were no iPhones, no internet, you tended often to do a press kit and invite the media to come in and then you handed out a press kit that was in some case later years photocopied but in the very early years we used to use a machine that you wouldn't even I guess Stetner and it was uh, the secretaries would type it on a stencil and then literally run it off almost like a printing mini printing press but it, everything was done generally on the phone or in person different from today. How have you seen seen um, PR change from the time you started in PR to how it's kind of done uh, when you retired? It was huge because uh, in the early days, you would have, if you had a crisis situation, for instance, you would likely have a day or two to plan a communication strategy and find your spokespeople. And then, you know, you would call a press conference and deliver your your messaging. Today, you likely have about 30 seconds. It's a whole different world. Like when I thought back, for instance, there were no, uh, no computers. Secretaries used a selectric typewriter. There was uh, no voicemail. <clears throat> so I would have a secretary 
secretary with a phone book that had pink slips. And in the case, you always kept a book that had four on a page because it had a carbon in case you had to call a reporter back. And a secretary would, if I was on the phone, my secretary would answer the phone and take the message, and then you would have to call. I got one of the very first cell phones when I joined MTS, and that was in 1989. So that was at the end of the 80s. There was no email, no Facebook, no Instagram, no text, no Twitter. And the internet was, I think, introduced here in Manitoba about 1995, and it was dial-up. There was no high speed. Very few people had it. Certainly wasn't on any phones. I realized how much the technology had changed the job. Do you think the instantaneous sort of expectation that like businesses and corporations have to respond to things immediately, do you think this is helped PR or do you think this is sort of hurt the profession? I think it's very hard to have a profession that you literally have no time to think because I'm sure any challenge we face, if we have time to think it through, often our first thoughts have changed through a process of discussion or whatever. In today's environment, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for PR professionals to really think through it challenging because uh, you almost have to, or the temptation is to respond immediately. And I'm not sure that's the best process in terms of dealing with a crisis, particularly. Straight news is one thing, you're just putting it out. And it's, I guess, easier, although I think there's so much out there, it's much more difficult to get your message out today than it was years ago. So were there any big events um, sort of maybe in the 80s that you can remember like responding to and like what did you do in those big events? Oh, for instance, when I was at the air show, we had over the years, because I was there for a long time, we had several airplane crashes and uh, we would we would have we had a crisis team uh, that dealt with the actual emergency. We had a crisis communications team. It involved uh, both the medical and um, the recovery people and communications people. And in that case, when, for instance, the snowbirds crashed one year, they were a worldwide team known, and we we handled calls from all over the world. But uh, those were telephone calls, and they had to call during their working hours. It meant we worked all night. But it was uh, you dealt with it by having a press conference. You know, we we called all the media and told them there would be a press conference at 8 o'clock at night. So there was time to prepare and get ready for it. And, and also there was time to get detailed information. You weren't going out uh, by the seat of your pants and not knowing what the full story was, just in an effort to respond. And I think that's part of the current technology Because we respond right away, people send you an email and they expect to hear back from you almost at the same time. In those days, uh, you'd get a phone call and if uh, they had to leave a message, they didn't expect you to, uh, to phone back immediately. They knew that there would be a number of people that you would also have to call. So the temptation, I think, 
uh, going forward for um, the current class is going to be not to respond immediately, to take a breather, think the situation through, and then respond. Because that way, uh, you're better to, you're more likely to have a more accurate response to an issue. I think you're going to have to not worry about sending the text right back. And I, I guess if you want a, a good example of, of is the current president in the United States, who constantly responds to issues on his Twitter account and often totally wrong. He's got the information wrong. He's got the timing wrong. And you don't want that as an example for a corporation. We talk a lot about the Tylenol crisis in a lot of our classes. Um, (laughs) Do you have uh, anything you'd like to say or like, could you tell us a little bit about that? I certainly watched it. And at one point I taught a course at the University of Winnipeg um, on public affairs and would there was the Tylenol case. There was also the um, smelly tuna, which a star tuna, which was happened in New Brunswick, likely in the same decade. It was handled extremely well. And in those days, it was unusual to see a CEO on the news. And uh, the one, well, and I'll give you the comparison of the two cases of Tylenol. The um, CEO was immediately on the national news stations, certainly in the States, promised to immediately change the bottles, the cap, they withdrew. So the action was now immediate in our sense at that time, would not be immediate today. It was likely within the same day, but that was considered a absolutely immediate response. Starkest Tuna were in New Brunswick, and but their general manager was came from somewhere in California. <clears throat> and there was all kinds of talk on the street about the smell of tuna at the plant. And uh, the TV uh, major stations couldn't get anybody to respond from the company. They had no comment. They weren't going to comment on it. Well, then they go out on the street, and anybody they stopped on the streets, I believe it was Fredericton, could have been Moncton now, and uh, could tell them about the smelly tuna. And they literally lost hundreds of thousands of dollars by not responding to that issue. So I think CEOs over the years have learned it's better if you've got a major crisis, you need to put your CEO out. A Boeing, another good example, now it's carried on much longer, a very complex issue, but with the, the new Boeing aircraft, the CEO of Boeing was on the news last night or the night before, and I don't remember ever seeing the CEO of a corporation that large doing a being speaking on TV. So obviously, corporations have learned if you've got a major crisis, you better put your top guy out there. You've got to convince the top man that you're a woman. It could be both today, hopefully. Uh, your key person and, and a lot of key executives are not comfortable uh, speaking to the media. In fact, they're most uncomfortable with it. We're seeing more and more that have had training and, and are out there, but it is a challenge, it, depending on who the top executive is, to t- make them take responsibility. No one likes to make a mistake, whether it's for your, your personal or your corporation. Why do you think CEOs are uncomfortable talking to the media? Partially because they haven't had the training, and I we did a lot of that at Manitoba Town. I had a media in those days. There was really no company here in uh, Manitoba. So because I'd worked in Toronto for a number of years, I 
contacts there, and there was an excellent media training company in um, Toronto. And I ran all of our executives through the course, so they all had basic media training. I would also put our CEO, uh, when we became a publicly traded corporation in 97, you have to do an annual general meeting, and a CEO has to be able to talk to uh, not only the investment community, which they often do on teleconference because they're right across the country, but they also have to hold a large shareholder meeting. And I always put our CEO through media training uh, before every major annual meeting, public event, and uh, prepared all the questions we could think of, uh, good and bad they would be asked by the facilitator to answer those questions. So they weren't taken by surprise. I mean, you couldn't foresee every event. But at least if an executive is more comfortable with answering difficult questions, they're able to do a better job. Very important. When you did that media training, was it mostly just asking questions and responding? Did you talk about like maybe body language or anything like that? Yes, uh, they would. Now, normally at that that level, although we certainly have a prime example now on the TV that changed the landscape, but I would suggest to you most top executives, you don't have to worry about the language. Part of your job as a PR professional is to look at the whole picture. For instance, um, I had a CEO because he was uncomfortable, even in asking, um, answering questions from employees, would jingle change in his pocket. Well, after about two events, I would hold my hand out, he would give me all his change, and then we would continue with the meeting. So you have to be aware of sort of what and try to handle it diplomatically. We all have different mannerisms that affect us. But when you're in a crowd and you you are uncomfortable, the nervous habits stand out. It's up to the PR professional to look at the big picture. Look at the room. I got caught once. I had uh, We had uh, media into one of our switches. The 911 service had gone down. I was in the habit of going in ahead of time, uh, looking over the whole room if there were Coke cans or anything sitting around that wasn't going to look on good on TV at, at night. I would move it and way up on the top of one of the walls, in, not in the area we were going to work in, uh, have the uh, media into, uh, there was a smiley sign that said, smile, it won't break. <laughs> and I looked up at it, and I thought, oh, the cameras, they'll never see that. Well, guess what was on the news that night? Of course, the sign. Yeah. So <laughs> those are the things that you have to be aware of. You really have to kind of just scan the room. And I used to say, imagine if you were watching this on the TV set at night. Would Is that the image you would like to see, whether it's dress? Sometimes you you have to say to employees that are going to be in the scene, um, could you put a jacket on? You know, you don't want to be seen on TV in a T-shirt with a logo on it, for instance. So it's the big picture. It's really, really, really important. Could you get like run us through a typical day um, working at the the aviation? Oh wow! Place. <laughs> <laughs> it was crazy. Uh, the air show was the long weekend in September. It was a four-day show. It involved uh, a week of about 500 people in, in from all over the world and airplanes parked in 
four different airports. So it was, uh, there were so many details. I would have support staff uh, in the, certainly the four summer months leading up to the show. Phones never stopped ringing. We were dealing with everything from um, social events. There'd be five big social events involving 500 people. Um, often and there was airplanes parked, there was transportation. Now, I, I worked with the volunteer committee, I don't know, likely 40 people. And I look back now, 90% male, and most of them had had were pilots or air traffic controllers. And it was a huge coordinating. So not only did you have the PR, you had all of, you know, calling up uh, the media, arranging for press rides because the various teams, the Snowbirds, the Blue Angels, um, even the small aircraft, uh, the aerobatic, they would all take a media person up for a media ride. And so you had to arrange that and the logistics of that. Um, And so it was wide ranging, everything from organizing with a hotel to uh, for your rooms and meals and um, to the actual logistics of ordering jet fuel. So you really, and often a PR job is not just public relations in the terms that we think of it, dealing with the media. It's a wide-ranging job, and a lot of the really fun ones, you have um, everything from making sure that the coffee pot is there to some very complex communication, as we did when the crash, well, we had several crashes over the years that I was there, but um, the biggest one in terms of media coverage was the Snowbirds. And how long did you did you work with them? started in 74, and I left in... Uh, well, I left full-time and worked for an aviation company in 1980, but I stayed on as the vice president of the air show in a volunteer position until 89, until I moved out here to Winnipeg, so it was a long time. Where did you work, kind of in the 80s? A company called DevTech Corporation, and they were in the aerospace, and that's how I moved um manufacturing, and uh, they were a publicly traded corporation, and um, it was part of the reason that I was hired. I grew up in Winnipeg, but left when I got married and lived in Toronto for actually 23 years. So part of the reason I was hired at Manitoba Tell is that they knew they were going to go public. It was in the plans then, and they wanted somebody with that experience because doing public relations for a publicly traded corporation is quite different than just an ordinary company because you've got other you have to deal with security commissions and certain rules. And I had luckily, and lots of times you'll learn on the job in PR, you have the opportunity to learn other skills. When I was at DevTech, um, they, they went public. It was a smaller corporation. So I also did the investor relations as well as the public relations. And that meant taking courses at the uh, Ontario Securities Commission. You'll have the opportunity if you're uh, to learn many other related fields, but also quite different. Yeah, it sounds like um, PR is kind of a jack-of-all-trades sort of yes, profession. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and it's a wonderful career. I've said that no two days were the same. It was a lot of hard work because it often involves late hours. I mean, and I'm sure your instructors have told you that. There were certainly times that MTS telecommunications was changing by the minute, and we'd be doing press kits at midnight because something would have been changed. It's a fun job. It really is. And there's a wide range in the field. 
from corporations to uh, a sporting companies, uh, uh, Mr. Donnelly, who's with the MTS Center. There's all kinds of uh, a full range in the field. And politics, I've said to lots of people, one of the best ways to get some really good communication experience for free is to sign up with a political party or candidate. There's lots of candidates out there that if you like the candidate, offer your services to go and work in the office. And it doesn't matter what you start doing, you'll pick up all kinds of expertise or information as you go along and see how, for instance, political campaigns, they're run quite differently than they were years ago. But I I was very involved politically down east. And when you work for a crown corporation, which MTS was, you don't get involved uh, politically because you're basically representing the government. That's a really great way or volunteer for a sports event or a charity. And I'm sure you'll have to do some of that with your assignments. But there's many ways to pick up communication experience. If you have that, you're more apt to be successful in getting uh, employment when you finish your courses. Talk a little bit about politics. Um, how how have you seen like campaigns? Like how are they run in the '80s, and how have you seen them change <laughs> now? Huge. Yeah. <laughs> We would have, for instance, back in the, the 80s, and I chaired a mayoralty candidate well, for three elections, I guess, in Ontario. We would have an office, and we would have everything was on paper. We'd have a bank of telephones. There was no computers. We did a lot of door knocking. We would cover basically the whole town by door knocking and delivering printed literature. Everybody got a brochure at the door, which they're rare now, I find. And we would go through, we'd have volunteers that would go through these great lists we would be provided from, the, I guess, the clerk of, in this case, it was municipal politics, although I also worked federally as well. And everything was done with paper and a pencil and a ruler. And you would, volunteers would call people in the, in the riding and then you would you know, mark on this piece of paper whether you thought they were a supporter or not. And if they were a supporter, you would do very much what they still do today. We would phone up the supporter and ask them if they needed a ride and uh, remind them it was voting day. So it was a lot of hands-on today. Uh, you've got robocalls. You've got emails. You've got – I did some work for a provincial – candidate a couple of years ago here. I volunteered and I was in um, uh, phoning. Well, I couldn't believe the change because everything's on the computer. The resident's name pops up on the computer. You know there, uh, how many people are in the family and uh, you can just click an icon and that tells you whether they're a supporter or not. I mean, it, it's light years from running campaigns. I mean, everything now is, I just read in the paper today where the Conservative Party sent out an email that was from the leader, but used the name Lisa. We would never have done that. And in fact, I would be outraged if I got an email. Uh, I think some parties in the, the rush to get information out are making a big mistake because there's nothing people dislike more than being fooled. I think. But that's how fast it is. They, ju they just sent out an email to everybody. And if you clicked on it, 
uh, there's quite a good article in the free press today. If you clicked on that, then your name and telephone number, email, whatever, was added to the the conservative listings. So to me, that's how you end up in the paper with a negative. So you've really got to think some of these things through as to what is ethical and what isn't. I think there's a fine line today. You guys got challenges ahead of you. I think you've picked a wonderful career. I happen to be biased. You have a wonderful instructor. Very true. Um, she was, um, an, well, I used to say um, they made me look good every day, and in particular, Melanie. Very, um, uh, very particular, very precise. Uh, accuracy is absolutely crucial in your job and the use of language. And sometimes that's easy to overlook when you're in a rush and trying to get something out. You've got a great career ahead of you. Do you have any tips for people who are um, looking to pursue careers in PR? Uh, do as much volunteer work as you can do. And I don't care where it is, if it's sports, if it's, and maybe a couple of, you know, maybe a charity and maybe a sports. Well, as much time as you've got, which I know is limited. But the more experience you can get dealing with people, you've got to like people, you've got to be curious, you can't be biased new lifestyles, and I think if you do that, you're setting yourself up not only to do better at the, the profession, but also from a perspective of a employer. I'm a firm believer in volunteer work, and there's not enough of it today. My daughters, I've got two daughters much older than you, uh, one now is a judge, one works in computers, but they were working in campaign offices when they were 10 years old because I was there. So they would be there, you know, delivering coffee, uh, delivering brochures. They go out with an adult. They uh, have had successful lives because they're comfortable with a wide range of people, different ages, different genders. And I think that likely is the best. Um, I know you work with a nonprofit, I think, I'm not sure what year, as part of your your course but that kind of experience you can't you can't pay for i just want to touch on one thing you mentioned when you started in pr you know in the 70s 80s was it kind of more male dominated or was it oh yes yeah that's interesting <laughs> i think uh this year for our pr class there's yeah, i think much more male dominated when i did my apr which is a long time ago and I used to go to the public relations meetings in toronto i would say it was well, certainly more 80-20, maybe. But, and a lot of the PR people with corporations then came out of being reporters. That would be their first job, would be a reporter, often for a community newspaper. Sometimes they'd move into the major newspapers. But often the big companies would hire someone with that background. And, you, of course, there were no computers in those days. So most PR professionals, if you were head of a department, you had secretaries and writers that would uh, maybe come out of the journalism courses that would prepare the press releases and newsletters or any communication, business letters. Because we used to do a wide range even here in NMTS. We would do marketing letters, employment letters. The staff had a wide range. It wasn't just news releases. 
So any kind of writing would be done in a PR department. But um, I would hazard most PR professionals today do not have a secretary. I may be wrong there, but I would think most of them handle most of their own work in terms of now with computers and email. I got in corporate communications at Manitoba Tell, I got one of the first computers in, I'm going to say it was 1989 or 1990 in the department on my desk. And the secretaries all had either selectric typewriters or they some of them had these memory typewriters where you could only see they had a disc in them and you could only see one line at a time but it was correctable you could correct it on this disc but that's where it was and where you think where it is today is totally different i think those are all the questions we have um unless there's anything else you'd like to add that you think is important no uh, i just think you've drawn you've picked a fabulous career And no two days will be alike, so you might as well get used to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, thank you. But it is. It's a great great career. And the thing is, pick up, just absorb as much information around whether it's, and I I firmly believe even in print, I believe we're lucky here because I've traveled a lot. We've got an excellent pre-press. It's likely one of the better newspapers out there today, including in the States. I was in Phoenix, and there was no comparison to what our free press covers. Paul Semin, our current editor, was the bane of my existence. I was at Manitoba Town because he's absolutely brilliant, and he was a very good investigative reporter. And he would dig, and he would dig, and he would dig until he got the real story. And in those days, we were government-owned, and there was a lot of pushback. By reading the print, I think you have, again, a time to absorb the story and think about it. And it's a real shame we're going to we're going to start to lose that if we're not careful, because, unfortunately, the ads are going all electronic. And the other one that I feel, two things I would read in the paper— I would read, as as the professional, I would read the letters to the editor, scan them, because it gave me a feel of what Joe Public was thinking. And the other that gives you a really good feel often is the editorial cartoon. And they used to year, print those in a book at the end of the year, McPherson, who was a very good cartoonist. And it really gives you an overview in a very simplistic form, the issues of the year and what was important and what wasn't. So those are things like, you know, if you can't scan the newspaper, scan the letters to the editor, there's often issues that will crop up there, particularly for a corporation that um, today it's much harder because people can put stuff out on Facebook, and to, but it still needs to be tracked and to know what's being put out there. You've got a challenge ahead of you. And tell the truth. Don't ever lie to your boss or your company. And we've seen again what's happened there. The communications people at the White House, uh, Spicer was is a terrific example. He's like the Tylenol case. I don't care who your president is, your CEO. You're the one that's out there as the professional. Do not lie. Lose your job before you lie for the corporation. And I used to say that's what PR is about. Public relations is tell the truth. And if you tell the truth, it'll never come back to bite you. And if it's a crisis, you'll deal deal with it day one. Might might hurt day one, but the company will move on. And if you just put the word truth up above your desk, and I said that to CEOs. I mean, when you get more experienced and older, you certainly can stand up to you as a female in those days. I think today is a little different, but maybe not. I've 
said right up front in an interview, don't ask me to lie because I won't lie for the company. I think that's really good advice. Can you tell us your favorite part of working in public relations? Oh, the variety. I used to say at Manitoba Tell, I would have a list. At night, I always cleaned my desk and made a list of what I was going to do the next day. And I had to do that with the air show because I guess I learned way back then there were too many important things. If I didn't order the JP-3 gas, the big fighter plane wasn't going to fly. So I learned to make a list at night before I went home quickly. I used to use an old, what was called an old steno book. You guys would do it on a iPhone. Anyways, I would make a list. And I used to say what was in my job jar at 9 o'clock in the morning was not there at 9.10 because the telephone would ring and there was telephone service was out. Something had gone wrong. And so that's the fun part about PR is you've got to be flexible enough to change gears uh, midstream. You can't plan your day because you make it through your plans, but you may not. That's the real fun of the job, I think. I think it's a fabulous career. Well, and now the other challenge you guys are facing is this 10-second news. And uh, I wasn't dealing with 24-hour news cable in my day that ran over and over and over. But even still, I would do a half-hour interview. And because we were a crown in the early days and the government were always watching, you know, you'd do a half-hour interview and they show 30 seconds on the, the TV at night. And, and now you're lucky if you get 10 seconds. Invariably, they'll pick out the one quote that you don't want. Uh, so the other thing is you really have to put your thinking cap on. It's a whole different world out there today. But you guys have grown up with it. I had to get my granddaughter to teach me how to text. So, <laughs> And I got one of the first cell phones in 89. It was the size of a brick with an antenna on the top. And it was only the executive. And when we drove to Brandon for meetings, they had to put an antenna on the roof of the car. or Otherwise, we couldn't pick up service. That's not that long ago. Yeah, no, not long ago at all. And we used to be live on the radio all the time. Peter Warren used to have a morning show. And I would be on, I bet you, live once a month talking about technology. And I told him many years ago when phones were almost the size of a brick, that one day Dick Tracy, the cell phone would be the size of Dick Tracy's watch. And he used to call me Kirby and uh, by my last, and he'd say, he said, no way, Kirby, never. You're dreaming. Well, the Apple Watch <laughs> <laughs> is here, so we've come a long way. Anyways, have fun. Uh, good luck. I guess um, you're close to being through the, se- the course, I presume, this at least this session. Yeah, yeah, we have uh, just, uh, I think, two weeks left. Wow. Yeah. Well, go out and volunteer this summer. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and have a good time. Yeah. Okay, it was great talking to you. It was good for me. I had no idea technology had changed so much. So when I thought about it, I thought, my gosh, it's a whole different world today. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for talking to us. You're um, very welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.